Uh, now, I'm sure that you've been told at some point in your life that you need to see the bigger picture. Uh, you need to see the bigger picture. And it's often right, isn't it? When we uh, see the bigger picture, uh, it changes our, uh, what changes the situation that we're in. Uh, we get that broader perspective. Now, I want to show you a photo. Uh, it's a slightly grainy picture of, up there. Um, it looks like it's a picture of a lady who's just parked her car. Now, if you look more carefully at the picture itself, you can maybe see a boat in the background. Um, you know, she's parked her car at the marina, um, and she's looking reasonably pleased with herself. I don't know about you, whether you know, it's a wet, windy day this morning, whether you got to park close to church and you kind of got out of the car feeling, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with myself. I've, 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 or, or when you pull up to the shops and you... You just get a park right outside the shop that you want to go to. Uh, yeah, and there's that sense of satisfaction. And she looks like she's got that you know, sense of satisfaction with her, her, her park that she's got. But when you stand back and you look at the bigger picture, when you see what's really going on, the whole situation looks pretty different, doesn't it? Now, I've seen some shocking parking in my time, uh, but that, that, that really takes the cake. Now, I'm not sure whether it's... I don't think she parked the car there. I think she's just posing for a photo. But... Don't miss the point. It's, it's important to see the bigger picture. It's important to consider the bigger picture. And that's especially true as we read the Bible, uh, which is something that we've been doing during this series on Sound Doctrine. We've been looking at the bigger picture. We've been looking at the whole sweep of the Bible. And this week in particular, we're looking at what the Bible, what the whole Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. Uh, because in my experience, uh, so much of the division and arguments amongst Christians about the Holy Spirit has to do with the fact that we don't understand the Holy Spirit in view of the bigger picture, the grand sweep of the Bible. And so we end up with these warped and skewed ideas about the Spirit that come from focusing on one or two, on one or two passages in the Bible at the expense of that bigger picture. And so we've got to see the whole Bible, and we want to see what the whole Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit fit into God's big plans and purposes to save and redeem a people. Uh, so uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. And the place, to, the, the Bible is the place to go to understand the Spirit. Let me be really clear about that. The Bible is the place to go to understand the Spirit. And the reason is because the Bible actually claims to be inspired by God's Holy Spirit. Uh, here are these words from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, first of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of a man. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You see what Peter is saying there, that the Bible is the Spirit-inspired Word of God, the Spirit's own Word to us about the Father, about the Son, about the Holy Spirit Himself. Which means that there's nothing more spirit-filled than the Bible. There is nothing more clear about who God is and, and who the Spirit is and what the Son has done than the Bible itself. Which is interesting for the people who want to say that Bible reading and Bible teaching is somehow less spiritual than other things we might do at church. If this is the words of the Holy Spirit, how can that be anything but deeply spiritual? to sit and read what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through the Bible. 
to focus on other things, other ways, experiences or movements of the Spirit in history, to, to look at those things to try and understand who the Spirit is and what He does, that seems to have things all the wrong way around. The best way to get to know the Spirit is to read the Spirit's own words. Read the Spirit's own words in the Bible. And that's what we're going to do this morning. What we're going to do is it's going to be a highly spiritual exercise because we're going to read the Bible together. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by looking at a small passage of the Bible and it's a passage that's usually taken out of its context and we're going to see what happens when we put it back into its context, into the big picture of the Bible. And we'll see what the whole Bible is teaching about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're not going to see every individual teaching in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see the big, broad brushstrokes. What does the Bible really want you to know about the Holy Spirit? Well, hopefully we'll see that this morning. Uh, the text that I want to begin with is uh, a little text in Luke uh, chapter 11, verse 13. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, Luke 11, verse 13. Uh, it says this, uh, Jesus is speaking. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, this is a well-known verse in the Bible. Uh, It comes from this well-known passage. Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. Uh, He's given them a version of the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus is telling his disciples that they need to keep banging on the doors of heaven relentlessly and ask and keep on asking. And just like an earthly father knows how to give his kids food when they ask for it and not a rock or a snake or a scorpion, God, he's a good father, he, he will answer. How much more will God, the God who loves you, will he answer? Um, and, and, and he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, you may have never noticed that verse before, that's okay, um, but I'm sure that some of you have heard that verse before and I'm sure you've heard something along these lines to explain it. You might have heard this, Jesus is saying to his disciples to pray and keep on praying and God will give you more of the Holy Spirit if you ask. Or maybe you've heard, if you wonder why your, your uh, spiritual life feels dry, well, you wonder, maybe you don't have enough of the Holy Spirit, so you've got to pray and ask for more and ask and ask and ask more and more and more and God will give you more of his spirit. Or maybe you've heard something else from a a well-meaning friend or pastor, and I heard this one a lot growing up. Uh, If you want want to be a real Christian, you need to speak in tongues, or you need to be slain in the Spirit, or you need to uh, have an abundance of the Spirit. If you want to live a victorious life, uh, then you've got to go and ask and seek and knock and keep praying and keep pestering God until he gives you that abundant experience of the Spirit. And then if, if you don't have that, then maybe you're not prayerful enough or maybe you don't have enough faith or maybe you're just not a Spirit-filled Christian. And when they say that, they'll use verses like this in Luke chapter 11 uh, or maybe another passage and they'll, they'll say that to you and they'll leave you feeling inadequate or second-rate, or a second-class Christian, because you haven't had this abundance of the Spirit that they talk about. And then they put it on you. It's up to you to pray harder. It's up to you to seek an experience. It's up to you to have more faith if you're going to be a real Christian, a Spirit-filled Christian, a first-class Christian. Have you ever had someone talk to you like that? Have you ever had someone make you feel like that? 
let's see what happens when we, when we stand back and let's see what happens when we stand back and look at the big picture of the Bible. Because uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to look at the big picture of the Bible and we're going to go right back to the beginning. Right back in the beginning, uh, we have God the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and He creates everything. And in His creation, humanity is created as the, the pinnacle of creation and created to rule the world under God in relationship with Him. Uh, humanity, kind of corporately and individually, we all rebel against our Creator, our loving Creator God. We tell Him to shove off. We don't want anything to do with Him. We've, we saw this in our series so far. We ignore Him. We disobey Him. We keep Him out of our lives and our hearts are broken. They're broken as we turn away from the God who made us. And although we deserve God's judgment and His wrath, God doesn't immediately give humanity what they deserve. He makes promises to his people. He promises to gather a people for himself. And uh, the people of God in the Old Testament, this gathered people of God, they were the Israelites. And God gave them uh, his laws and his words and he made a covenant with them. An agreement that forms a relationship between God and his people. And then God promises to bless his people. And the main shape of that blessing in the Old Testament is the land, the promised land. And for the people, if they remain faithful to God, then they, they can live in the land and, and living in the land, in, in, enjoying God's presence and enjoying his security and safety and success, living under God's blessing in his land. But that wasn't all God said. God said that this promise and this of blessing, it, it comes with a warning too. And we read all about this in Deuteronomy, which we looked at a couple of years ago. If, if, if God's people turn their back on the covenant, if they forget God, if they disobey his words, then God says that they can't remain in the land anymore. He will, he will throw them out of the land, that they'll be scattered throughout the world. And it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 63. The words are up there. Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among the nations from one end of the earth to the other. And so here God has his chosen people and he's given them the land and his blessing and he's warned them, if you turn your back on me, then I will take this away from you and you'll be scattered throughout the world. And that warning gets repeated over and over again through the prophets over the years, but they don't listen. And so after a long decline, finally in the year 587 BC, the Babylonians, they march into Jerusalem and the walls come down and there's blood in the streets and the survivors are marched off into exile and they're scattered all around the world, all over the Mediterranean with nowhere to call home. The nation of Israel is now dispersed to the most distant nations under heaven and uh, you can see it on a map, scattered all over the place. But that wasn't God's final word. That wasn't God's final word in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, There's another word that comes in Deuteronomy chapter 30. A final promise from God remains. If you turn back to God with all your heart, if you turn back to him, then there is a promise of a new start where God will actually change your heart from a heart that rebels against him to a heart that is warm to him. Uh, It says this in Deuteronomy chapter 30, He will bring you back to the land that belonged to your ancestors. You will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him 
with all your heart and with all your soul and you may live. Now, when God's people turn back to him, they turn away from their wickedness and they turn back to him, God says he's going to do radical heart surgery on them. So right from the heart, right from the deepest levels of their desire, right at the centre of who they are, God will transform them. He'll transform them to desire to keep his laws, to listen to him, to be obedient to him. And it's like his law will be written on their hearts. Now, how will God perform this heart surgery? Well, Ezekiel 36, you may have wondered, I thought we were talking about the Spirit, we haven't mentioned the Spirit yet. Well, here we go, Ezekiel 36. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So how does God perform that radical heart surgery? Well, how does he turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh? Well, he does it by his Holy Spirit. Verse 27 again, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Now, if you were an Israelite at the time, that would blow your mind. That was so revolutionary that God, who made everything, would put his spirit in you. (coughs) That would absolutely turn your world upside down. Because throughout the Old Testament, the spirit of God... It equips judges and prophets and priests and kings, these special leaders. It equips them with supernatural strength and courage and wisdom for the good of his people. And so in the Old Testament, God's Spirit would only kind of work through kind of a special anointed leader. Um, But you have this promise that this Holy Spirit that empowers the great leaders of your nation, that it's going to actually come to you. It's going to change you. Kind of regular Joe and Jane Israelite, they're going to have the Holy Spirit in them and that, that, that blows their mind. But it doesn't even stop there. The prophet Joel, which we just read, he's talking about the same thing. After the exile, when Israel, they, they, they turn their hearts to God and God's promised Holy Spirit comes and when that come, day comes, it won't just be the prophets who know God's heart, but it'll be everyone because God's Holy Spirit is going to be splashed around everywhere. Take a look at Joel chapter 2, verse 28. You won't even have to be an Israelite, Joel says. Here's what it says in Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And afterwards I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on my servants. Both men and women, I'll pour out my spirit in those days. Now, just the other day, Adele and I were trying to explain to the kids what a landline telephone was. They had absolutely no concept whatsoever. Uh, We told them that each house had one phone and it was plugged into the wall and it sat on a particular wall or desk and it didn't move. And only one person could use it at the time. And if you picked it up to call your friend and they didn't answer or someone else was on the phone at their house, that was it. You, 
you couldn't text them, you couldn't email them, you couldn't Snapchat them, you couldn't Facebook message them, you couldn't WhatsApp them, you couldn't anything them. You just had to try again later. And Lucy's mouth just hit the floor. How on earth did you organize play dates? That was her main concern, because I think every time she says to Adele, I, I want to have a play date with so-and-so, Adele's response is, well, I'll send them I'm a, a text and we'll, we'll work it out. But Lucy was like, how do you organize play dates? You've got no emojis, you've got no Snapchat. She was shocked. See, these days, the, the landline, it's almost a thing of the past. With cell phones in our pockets, everyone can be connected in almost any way that they choose. And Joel here is saying it's, it will be the same with the prophets. There's going to come a day where God will pour out his spirit all over the place. God is going to write his law on people's hearts. So who needs a prophet anymore? To remind you of the law of God. If God has given it, he's written it into your heart. If he's going to indwell you by his Holy Spirit, we'll all be prophets, Joel is saying. And so Israel is waiting for that day to come, for when God would wash his people in his spirit, where his spirit will, uh, will come, not just to a few, but to all who turn back to God, to all who, who come and, and, and return to him. Now, I remind you, what we're doing here, what was it? we're taking in the big picture, but we had that small scene that we started with, with Jesus talking to his disciples in Luke chapter 11. And we've stepped back uh, through the, the Old Testament and we've followed the story of a whole nation waiting, longing for the time where God would wash them by his spirit. And so far, right up until the end of the Old Testament, that day hasn't come. A nation, they've been told that if they turn, their, turn, turn around and, and stop turning their backs on God and they turn to God with all their hearts, then he's going to change their hearts. Well, that day hasn't come by the time we get to the end of the Old Testament. And so the next step in our journey is Luke chapter 3. And in Luke chapter 3, we meet a man called John the Baptist, and he's uh, out there kind of preaching in the wilderness, and he's baptizing people. Uh, which, in the original text, the word baptize just means wash. Uh, we've turned baptize into a religious word, but it just meant wash. It's the same word we use for our kids when they come back from the bathroom and we haven't heard the tap running. We say, Finn, go back and wash your hands after using the toilet. We could equally say, go back and baptize your hands after using the toilet. It means the same thing. It just means to wash. Uh, Now, remember Ezekiel. He said that one day God was going to wash his people. And he was going to wash them with his spirit. And one day God was going to put a new heart in his people. And he's going to do it with his spirit. And that's what they've been waiting to see all the way through the New Testament. And so here we have the words of John the Washer, John the Baptist. And he's calling Israel to repent. He's calling them to to do that turn, to turn back to God. And people are wondering as they hear him say that, they're wondering, is he the Christ? Is he the one who's going to bring God's Holy Spirit to us? Is he the promised Savior King? But John answers them in chapter 3. John the Baptist says this in chapter 3, verse 16. It's not me, I'm just the water washer. He says this. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now remember, that's exactly what Israel are waiting for. That's what Ezekiel has been promising for hundreds of years and John is saying, it's not me, but he's just around the corner. I'm not fit to undo his sandals, but I'm just sprinkling people with water as a symbol, but he's going to wash you 
for real with the Holy Spirit. And the one that John is talking about, it's Jesus, isn't it? The one who will wash us with the Spirit. The one who's, who will turn people's hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. The one who's going to turn people back to God. Jesus is the one. And it's a few moments later in John, sorry, in Luke chapter 11, we find Jesus talking to his disciples and he's teaching them what they should pray for. He's teaching them what they should pray for. And now Israel, they've been waiting all this time for the outpouring of, of God's Holy Spirit for generations. And, and, and John the Baptist has just said, I'm, I'm here to announce the one who is going to come and wash you with the Spirit. And now we have this big picture. And it seems pretty clear that Jesus is not giving his disciples here a few hints on effective prayer. When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us what to pray. Jesus has that very big goal in mind. His goal is a restored kingdom, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has come as the one who's going to finally do what the prophets have promised. He's going to do it by being what Israel should have been all along. He's going to do it by dying as their perfect sacrifice. He's going to do it by defeating death. He's going to do it by washing them with the Holy Spirit. And so what does he want them to pray for? Well, with that big picture in mind, Jesus is telling his disciples to pray like crazy that God will bring about what he has promised through him. Ask and keep on asking. Knock and keep on knocking. Pray for that kingdom to come because, you know what? It's closer than you think, says Jesus. And it's summarized there in Luke 11, verse 13. If you then know, so if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. That's what they're to ask for. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples to ask for, that God will finally, after all these years, give his people his Holy Spirit. That he'll give it to all those who turn and repent. And Jesus says to them that if you pray for that, if you pray for the gift of God's Holy Spirit, then God will answer that. You can have every confidence that he will answer that prayer because he is a good father who knows how to give good gifts to his children and that is the best gift. And so when, you, when we see that this is the big picture of what Jesus is talking about, we can see he's not, just talk, he's not talking to a bunch of Christians who want a little bit more of the Holy Spirit. He's not talking to people who are looking for a particular experience of the Holy Spirit. He's talking to his disciples before the Holy Spirit has come. And he's telling them to pray for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the coming of God's kingdom. And when we put it in that perspective, when we put it in that context, it actually leaves us on the edge of our seat there in Luke chapter 11. We're on the edge of our seat waiting to see what will happen. As Jesus is crucified, it looks like failure. And then he rises again. And then you turn into the opening pages of the book of Acts, which is the sequel to Luke's gospel. And finally it happens. Now, you may have read this many times before, but please look at it with fresh eyes with me. Eyes that have now seen the bigger picture. Acts chapter 1, Jesus, he spends 50 days with his disciples after the resurrection. And then he gives them these final instructions. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
But John baptized with water. But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Here we are, we're washing and we've got the Spirit again. Stick around and, and, and all that waiting will be over. Stick around and the promised Holy Spirit, where the one who will come and uh, transform your heart, that, will, that day is about to come. And so Jesus is taken up in a cloud and he's hidden from their eyes and they gather and they pray and they wait. And then in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, it finally happens. Acts chapter 2. Uh, it'd be great if you can have it open. Uh, now, Acts chapter 2, this is uh, at the time of Pentecost, which is the time where Israel celebrated the giving of the Old Testament law. Uh, but from this point on, the law is not going to be re- kind of just written down in the book, but it's going to be written on their hearts. Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now when you see this... this the, the remarkable thing here isn't that they're speaking in other languages. The remarkable thing is, is that the Spirit has come. That's what we're supposed to notice here in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit has come. The day has arrived. And why do they start sprouting other languages? Well, look, verse 5. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, which means like, aren't they kind of a a bit dumb or uneducated? Um, Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phyriga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and and the other parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Now, that's a great question. What does it mean? Well, if you look at the map, should have another map somewhere? No? Okay. That's fine. Uh, if you were to look at a map, uh, you would be able to see that these are people who have come from all over the world. God's people who had been scattered to every nation under heaven. And God said, I'll bring you back and I'll wash your hearts and I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So from this point on, you'll be serving me. And you, not, be, not by uh, kind of just keeping a set of rules, but you, not by observing the law, but you'll be serving me from the heart. And so as God pours out his Holy Spirit into his new people. He's gathered his people from all the nations. And no matter what nation these people have been scattered to, uh, they're back on pilgrimage and now they're hearing about the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit and they're hearing about it in their own language in a way that they can understand. And so as some people are, are poking fun, uh, they hear the commotion and they say that they're drunk, but Peter explains exactly what is going on. This is what the prophets foretold. This is exactly what Joel said. 
Verse 16, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. The prophets, they're out of work now. Because now God is pouring out his spirit on all people. The promised Holy Spirit has come. And all they have to do is what, Jesus, is what Peter says in verse 21. All they have to do is call on the name of the Lord Jesus and they'll be saved. All they need to do is repent and, and, and turn back to God and they'll be washed in the Holy Spirit. Which is exactly what thousands of them do on that day. On that day as God enables his, his, uh, Jesus' disciples to speak in the, in the languages of many people, God miraculously in that one moment brings back restoration to his people. He has gathered them back to himself and he has poured out his spirit on them. And the church is born as the Holy Spirit comes. The promised Holy Spirit comes. The one promised by Moses. The one promised by Ezekiel and Joel and many others. The one promised by John the Baptist and Jesus. He finally delivered in Acts chapter 2. And all they have to do is repent. All they have to do is repent and believe the Lord Jesus and they will receive the Holy Spirit who will change their hearts. Now, as we kind of wrap it all up, I want to just draw a few uh, threads together, make a few final observations. I've not said anything about um, gifts of the Spirit this morning, which one, some of you may have really been looking forward to that. Um, we're about to, next term, do uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 11 to 16, so we will deal with it then. Um, I didn't want to kind of get kind of bogged down in that without seeing the bigger picture. Uh, so uh, hold your questions until then, or if you desperately have a question about uh, something, then please put on the cards and I'll endeavour to answer it this week. But we need to keep the big picture in sight. We need to keep the big picture in sight. I'm sure that uh, there are people here who've met other Christians who've made them feel like they've been missing out. They've made, them, made you feel like you've not got enough that you haven't had the full Holy Spirit experience if you've not done X, Y or Z. If you've not been slain in the Spirit, if you've not spoken in tongues, if you've not um, experienced some sort of miracle or a particular ex- emotional experience. And, and maybe, if that's you, like me, if you haven't had those dramatic experiences, then maybe you've been left feeling that you've, you're missing out on something. That there's something lacking, that... Maybe you've not prayed enough. Maybe you've not had enough faith. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe you're not even a Christian. But when you see the bigger picture, you'll see that you, you, you lack nothing at all. If you've turned back to God and trusted in Jesus, then you have been given God's Holy Spirit You've got the full package. You've got what counts at the most. Because the great news of the whole Bible is that Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit on all who repent and turn back to him. On all who repent and turn back to him. 
Just as there's no need for prophets, priests or kings, all who come to Jesus now have an equal experience of God through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And there's no need for an extra experience or an extra blessing or an extra anointing because when we see the big picture of the Bible, that's amazing news. Because of Jesus, God has already poured out his promised Holy Spirit. That promise from long ago that the prophets promised, that John the Baptist promised, that Jesus promised, it has come for those who trust and follow Jesus. So if you have repented and trusted and followed Jesus, the Holy Spirit has washed your heart clean. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Now, He dwells in you. And the Holy Spirit continues to speak to you through the Bible. His inspired and spirit-filled words. And the Holy Spirit is in you as a deposit, guaranteeing that God will keep you to the end. And if you've had your heart washed clean, if the Spirit dwells in you by faith in Jesus, if the Spirit can still speak to you and does speak to you through the Bible, and is a deposit and guarantee of your future, what more could you need? What more could you want? I'll finish with these words from Romans chapter 8. The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Uh, Will you pray with me to the God that we can call Father because we have received the precious promised gift of his Spirit. Heavenly Father, we, um, we are people with hard hearts. Hearts of stone. But Lord, we thank you that You have worked by your Spirit to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. You've turned our hearts that rebel against you into hearts that seek you and serve you. We thank you that you fulfilled your promises from the prophets long ago, that you will pour out your Spirit. And Lord, give us great confidence that if we have turned and trust in Jesus, then we have your spirit completely and fully. That you dwell in us. That you speak to us through your word. And that you will hold us to the end as your children. Dearly loved. Amen.